Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. If you have the Bibles and you have them in front of you open, you can refer as we move through the text to what it is that we'll see in it. We meet Mary this morning. In the sixth month, Luke writes, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy You remember last week, this is how Luke sets the timetable on the basis of what we talked about last week, that Elizabeth is is elderly, she's married to Zechariah the priest, and Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem on the one chance he has to offer incense there in the holy place and appears and says to him, your prayer has been heard. You will have a son, and his name will be John, that is, John the Baptist. That is the messenger spoken of in the prophet Malachi, you remember from Roger's sermon last week, the one who comes to proclaim the way of the Lord. Mary doesn't know about that. Elizabeth had kept herself hidden, Luke says, the end of last week's text. This wasn't a general news item in Galilee. People were not talking about this fact. And here, six months later, here comes the Lord. Gabriel's back at it. Sent by God to Mary to bring good news to her too. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. You notice how Luke puts that? To a city of Galilee named Nazareth. As if his readers might not know where Nazareth was because they probably wouldn't have. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth isn't mentioned in any other Jewish writing apart from the New Testament anywhere other than or before the third century because Nazareth wasn't a significant place. No one important ever came from Nazareth. Today, it's a bigger city, 75, 80,000 people, somewhere in that range. But in Jesus' day, it was a town probably of a couple hundred people. Max 400, according to best estimates of archaeologists and scholars. 400 people. It's roughly halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. 
more or less. But it was sort of out of the way. People may have passed through it, but they certainly didn't go to Nazareth intentionally. There was farming. There was one well in the town of Nazareth, according to archaeologists. That would be where Jesus and Mary would have drawn water. In small rural type contexts in Galilee at that time like this, homes were maybe 500, 600 square feet, about heated with wood. And even part of those small homes would usually be occupied by livestock. This is the context. In other words, we're not in the Jerusalem temple anymore. Right? I mean, this whole narrative right before this, we're in the center of Jerusalem at the holy of holy places where the angel appears. Not now. So read it again, but feel the weight of what Luke is saying. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth? Really? I mean, Nathaniel says in John chapter 1, verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? which is a rhetorical question, to which the answer is no, or more accurately, I guess, no, except for Jesus, except for the Lord. He comes from Nazareth. Gabriel was sent to Nazareth, to a virgin, Luke says, to Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph. Now, I know that some of the details of these stories are familiar to those of you who heard them in churches over the years in seasons like this, but I still think they need to be said. Mary and Joseph, they're young in all likelihood. I mean, Luke doesn't say the age of either Mary or Joseph, so I, we can't be dogmatic about this, but we just know that it wasn't uncommon in that day for marriages to happen in the teenage years. And it's likely that Joseph was older than Mary. Tradition has it that Joseph is a lot older than Mary, but we don't really know that. Likely he was older than Mary by how much we don't really know, but they're probably pretty young. And whatever age they are, they're probably pretty poor. Joseph's a carpenter. No one of means lives in Nazareth. Just no one, no one of means lives in Nazareth. He was from the kingly line of David. Luke's very careful to point out, but that doesn't mean he had any kind of special status. He was likely a young man working a simple job, hoping to make things work, preparing for life with his wife-to-be. It's pure speculation, but it's not unlikely that Joseph would have known Mary much of his life. I mean, this is a little town. Their families probably knew each other. I'm just trying to sketch a little bit of the kind of context we're in. Luke says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That's 
kind of like engagement, kind of, sort of, but more serious than our modern-day engagement, as we refer to it. Betrothal was technically a pledge to be married. Historians tell us that it was not uncommon for a, a girl to be as young as 12 and be betrothed. Usually the betrothal period lasted one year. It began with a ceremony that anticipated the wedding in which the parents would agree that they should be married and there would be this simple religious ceremony. A covenant would be made and for the next year they would not live together. The man and the woman, they would not consummate this covenant but then at the end of the year the official wedding ceremony would happen and then they would live together as husband and wife and so Mary and Joseph were betrothed and it really meant something because that was a covenant that required a divorce to terminate even though they're not officially married yet. And you had to have, obviously, proper grounds for that. So it's not really like, it's, it, in some ways it's similar, but it's not the same as what we call engagement today. Now I'm just going to say a little more about Mary in terms of, in all likelihood, how we could understand who Mary was. In all likelihood, she and probably Joseph, too, were illiterate because very few women were formally educated then, formally educated, few men as well, but even fewer women, and especially in a small town like Nazareth. So we don't know that for sure, but more than likely, the connection that Mary would have had to God would be remembering bits of scripture that she had heard read in the synagogue and singing and praying to God, as of course she does in her marvelous Magnificat that we'll consider in more detail next week, where... Mary clearly has an understanding of Scripture, though likely not formally educated in that sense. So we're thinking about these kinds of things. We're thinking peasant girl. We're thinking pulling water from a well, out collecting firewood to heat the home like everyone else in Nazareth. And she's probably a teenager, probably a young teenager even, Think about that. It seems so strange to us. We don't even let kids that age have a driver's license, right? Too much responsibility. I mean, God sends Gabriel to junior high girl, high school girl, girl, as we refer to them today, but this is this is Mary and Joseph, verse 28. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, by which I just think Mary didn't know what was going on, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, as you would if an angel of Gabriel were to appear to you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. 
and will be called Mary, the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, that's Gabriel talking to this young girl in a nothing town like Nazareth. You have to imagine these words spoken in that context. This young woman has found favor with God. Favor, literally, Greek people, you'll see it. It's, it contains this word for grace in it. Caris, favor, grace. Oh, graced one of God, the one receiving the love and undeserved favor of God. Mary, God has favored you. He's chosen you. He's looked over the earth and he's favored you, Mary. That is the essence for all of us of our relationship with the Lord. How we're saved and loved and embraced by God and Mary was met by the grace of God. It's true for all of us that God's favor is upon us, but we don't deserve it. Mary didn't deserve it. Why would God favor Mary? Obviously, she is faithful. We'll see that response shortly, but why favor Mary? I mean, God could have said, i got to make sure I pick, you know, someone really well-established, really successful, really, maybe have a lot of money, significant woman in some great city so that my son can grow up in prominence and significance and affluence and have the best education and all the best things and God says (laughs) I choose Mary Mary who lives in Nazareth she will be the mother of my son Now, God can pick anybody from anywhere and love her or him. It doesn't mean that God doesn't also love people who have money and status and so on. I don't mean that. The point is that none of that matters to God. There's nothing in those things that earns God's favor. We constantly have to remind ourselves that that's true, don't we? And I mean, the birth narratives of our Lord can't make it any plainer. Mary's favorite. She has nothing. She lives nowhere. As far as the world's concerned. And she's told that she'll give birth to a son and that she's to name him Jesus. Now that's a name that means something. It's, it's Joshua. It's, it means Yahweh saves. Or Yahweh delivers. Now, the Gospel of Matthew says that that's his name because he'll save his people from their sins. It spells it out in Matthew. Luke just assumes you'll kind of get that this is what the name means. That Mary's son will be a savior, will be her savior. What incredible favor. 
And then comes her wonderful response. We're just we're moving through the narrative arc of this story first, and then I'll circle back and briefly comment on some of the theological other other matters that, in Gabriel's speech. But here comes Mary's wonderful response. She asks a question, and Julia read it just right, exactly right, in her intonation of it, because it's not the same as Zechariah's question from last week. So. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since uh, I am a virgin? Right? Mary's not asking for confirmation through a sign. Right? She's asking, in, in what manner... Um, will this happen? In what manner will this prediction of the angel come to be? I mean, she understands normal biology. There's no precedent for a virgin to conceive. So I think here you have a question that shows the difference between something bordering on unbelief and just asking good questions. I mean, you can believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus is God and that he died and rose and still have a lot of questions about how that all works. That's that's fine. I mean, Mary's a virgin. She, she doesn't argue or disagree, but she asks a logical question. Now, how is this going to work um, exactly? We know that's what she was asking because of the angel's response in verse 35. If you're looking at the text there, it's very different from the response Gabriel had to Zechariah from last week. I mean, John's conception was extraordinary, but Jesus' conception is beyond extraordinary. So look there at verse 35, and the angel answered her. So, Here's the answer to the question that she asked, right? Here's how it works, Mary. In language that is so mysterious yet beautiful, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. You realize that's that's the moment when we first find out that Elizabeth and Mary are related. Which is just a lovely thing for the Lord to do, isn't it? Think about being Mary. This just strikes me in this moment. You think about being Mary and being told that you're going to bear this son, though it's mysterious because the, the Almighty God Most High will overshadow you and you will conceive. Don't you need someone you can relate to about that somehow? talk to about that? I mean, not that Elizabeth's experience is that, but isn't it lovely that the Lord provides Elizabeth for them to come together? And we'll see next week how they meet. 
and what happens in that moment. The tenderness of the Lord. Then this line that the angel says, For nothing, Mary, will be impossible with God. Which is sort of like what the Lord said to Abraham about Sarah bearing Isaac in Genesis 18. Do you remember that story? The the Lord says to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so we're meant to make a whole sequence of biblical connections there. But the point that comes to us is, do you believe that? Do you believe this? Do you believe that what the angel is saying about the virgin birth is true? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is God. He can create things. He can take an elderly woman like Elizabeth and open her womb to conceive naturally. He can also take a virgin like Mary and give her a son supernaturally. He can take on, in fact, human flesh and enter history as the man Jesus Christ. You you see, you have to answer the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? You have to believe the statement, for nothing will be impossible with God here at this juncture, if you're going to end up believing it when you start talking about Jesus rising from the dead and raising us from the dead and forgiving our sins through the cross and sending the Holy Spirit to fill our lives and hearing and answering prayer and raising up his people and churches from nothing and mending relationships and making enemies friends and the gospel going out to the world. I mean, nothing is impossible with God. Starts here in the gospel. The virgin birth. Verse 38 then records this most beautiful of responses from Mary. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, you, you, you feel her summoning her strength in this moment. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Oh, I I think Mary's was a sincere, straightforward, beautiful faith. And if you want as simple a definition of faith as I can give you, it is that she believes what God says. She believes what God says. Through the angel. But it's what God says. That's the bottom line, isn't it? I am the servant of the Lord. Bond servant, literally, if you have the text in front of you there or you see the footnote in the ESV, that is one of humble, humble, humble station, right? Who addresses a superior in recognition of their position and Mary accepts openly what God asks of her. God can do with her what he wishes. And brothers and sisters, the question becomes, is that how we think? 
Or do we sort of have life charted out? And we want God to bless that and make that happen. Right? And what if God rewrites the plan? Is that okay? Because we miss this. We don't stop, I think, because it's just so familiar to us, to fully appreciate Mary's response. She had a plan. Wasn't this? <laughs> she was betrothed. She was set to marry Joseph. And I think, though the Lord would not require this, <laughs> but I think that Mary was prepared for that to not work out. And Gabriel comes and Mary says, Okay, the Lord's the one. <laughs> who gets to write the plan for my life. I'm his servant and I'm willing to give it up. Everything I have, really. Because now the law allowed for Joseph to divorce Mary for infidelity, which just frankly would be the obvious inference from her being pregnant, whatever it was that she said to him. I mean, I'd like to tell you that, you know, Mary explained it to Joseph, and Joseph just completely got it right away. But Matthew says that Joseph was going to do this. Joseph was going to divorce Mary. Until an angel told him not to. But Mary doesn't know that that angel's going to do that, you see? So I, I think that her response here means... She's willing, to, she's willing to give it up. She's willing to not marry Joseph, to give up her reputation, which could be something very painful for her. I am the servant of the Lord. This is a young woman who stands willing to let go of what it is she has so that she could serve God. And her faithfulness will be what the Lord uses to bring grace, salvation to the world. beautiful and let me just say this briefly not a big point but just a little point and I know that there's a lot of difference between first century Palestine and 21st century North America culturally and in all kinds of ways but I still think it's worth remembering and I've said it before in preaching from this text that in all likelihood this is the faith of a teenage young woman and we do well to remember that young people can have a walk with God and a relationship with God and a faith that rivals that of any adult. Adult as we define it in 21st century North America. I mean, our society just assumes that quote-unquote kids, and I don't know when you stop being a kid anymore in, uh, in North American culture. It's not at teenagers. They just sort of assume that it's, it's just natural to be immature or irresponsible or rebellious. And this seems to apply to all young people in the way that they're portrayed and talked about and sometimes the way we think about them. But Mary has her own faith and she loves the Lord and she's a virgin who's betrothed and an angel visits her and has a conversation with her and she engages the angel by all accounts handling it better than the priest did last week, right? And the angel gives the plan 
And Mary responds by faith. And I just think, I think that's very beautiful. And I'm partly moved by it because I can't help but reflect on the fact that I came to faith as a teenager at 16 years old. And it was a very, very serious thing. So I just say that Mary needs to be an inspiration to our daughters and our sons as they live through their teenage years. And that we would all believe that our children, young children, certainly teenage children, can possess such faith and integrity before the Lord. They need us to believe that and to teach that and to expect that, that this kind of faith is possible in their lives. Not in 10 or 20 years when they finally are grown up. So just that little sidebar. Of course, Mary becomes an inspiration not just for younger people, but for all of us. Because there's many ways in which what has happening to Mary here in some way is parallel to what happens to all of us. That God speaks to us. That God reveals himself to us. That as the angel would tell Mary about Jesus, so it is that we're told about Jesus. As as the Lord would come to Mary to birth new life in her, so the Lord comes to all of us in a in somewhat parallel way to birth new life in us. Different but related concepts that we have what Jesus calls new birth, being born again. The, the Holy Spirit did a miracle in Mary and the Holy Spirit does a miracle in us. Not the same miracle, but Mary was incapable of having physical life. But according to the New Testament, we're all incapable of having spiritual life. We're all dead. And the Holy Spirit imparts the very life of God. In one sense to Mary, but also to us. And we're born again. Our sins are forgiven and new life begins. I mean, the end of Galatians. New creation, Paul says. New creation. Mary responds to all this by saying, let it be to me according to your word. And the challenge is, will you say the same? Now, I told you I was sketching the narrative arc of this, and I've done that and gone that direction pretty full on in this sermon, I know, talking a lot about Mary, her example of faith, how the grace of God came to her, what all that might say to us, or at least trying to get to that a little bit. That's the narrative shape of the passage. But, of course, it's, it's not entirely the theological center of it, is it? Because the theological center of the passage is Jesus. And so at the risk of doing something that in homiletics courses they tell you you really shouldn't do, and so I probably shouldn't try to do this at the very end of a sermon, but I do want to try to sketch briefly something of what this passage is saying about Jesus. Keeping in mind the context, keeping in mind Mary's response to all this, her faithfulness by which 
the Lord will, will do all of this. But let me offer just briefly a set of this set of four observations about Jesus from this passage. And some of this we'll pick up next week when we look at the Magnificat that Mary sings. Four things I just want to point out about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is fully human and fully God. Fully human and fully God. I mean, he has a mother. His name is Mary. <laughs> He's going to be born and breastfed, and he'll learn to walk and talk and blow his nose and be raised by his mother, Mary, and by his earthly father, Joseph. But he's not just human. Gabriel says he is holy, the Son of God. Ultimately, within the shape of the gospel in the New Testament, that becomes a divine title in Jesus' case. Because Joseph isn't his biological father. Verse 32 of the passage makes very clear, it says, He is the Son of the Most High. Which then you can connect to verse 35, if you're looking at it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And it's because the power of the Most High overshadows Mary that it's Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Therefore, the angel says, note that connection, because of that, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And I think we see implied strongly here, it's not explicit, but implied here and then made explicit elsewhere in the New Testament, that this is the second member of the Trinity becoming the man Jesus. That Jesus is fully God, uniquely the Son of God, while being fully human, born of Mary. So that's number one. Number two observation, shorter, is that Jesus is a Savior. Now, we mentioned that earlier. It's not Gabriel's focus exactly, but it's there right up front when he states the name. You shall name him Jesus in Hebrew, Joshua, Yahweh saves. So that before Gabriel tells Mary of Christ's greatness and power, he makes clear what it's for, how he'll use it. He'll be a savior. He will be Jesus. Number three then, third observation, Jesus will be a great king. Great king. And really this is the main emphasis of Gabriel's words. So verse 32, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Some year I think we'll explore this biblical theme of the kingship of Jesus for the Advent season. It will be worth doing that. Jesus was born king. He was a great king. Gabriel's referencing, for those of you who know it, or you want to look it up later, referencing the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise made that David would be a king and that through David's family line would come a king, the king who would rule forever. That's Jesus. 
And all the prophecies of this Davidic son king would be fulfilled in Jesus. Prophecies like Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Mary's son will one day rule the world. And finally then, number four, Jesus is eternal. He's born of Mary, a man who will die one day. But even death will not hold him. Uh, That's implied by saying he's fully God, I know. But I mean, Jesus will be eternally everything we've just said. Fully man and fully God. A Savior and the great King. None of that ever ends. Of His kingdom there will be no end, Gabriel says. He is the Eternal One. And so, literally at the end of the Bible and the end of history... What does Jesus say? Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This will be your son, Mary. Mary, the the girl betrothed to Joseph of the town of Nazareth. What incredible news. What incredible grace. May we, like Mary, receive it in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.